This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by GE Additive. Additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a transformative approach to industrial metal production that could help address material shortages due to diminishing manufacturing supply. GE Additive provides machines, metal powders, engineering, and print services that can support the Navy with spare part printing capability and a more flexible spare parts supply base. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Morning, Ward. Another day in virtual paradise here. Um, so we've, we've gone over the drill many times on the show here, um, but we're still here. Groundhog Day a little bit, but we're happy to be able to... Uh, have great guests and keep the podcast rolling uh, in these unusual circumstances. Yeah, great. And I wanted to talk about a couple of things that the Naval Institute's doing. As we've said, we're open for business. It's just not business as usual. But we've got a couple of things coming up um, that, that, that show that. So the first thing I wanted to uh, let our listeners know, those who aren't members of the Naval Institute, who maybe haven't uh, decided to join the Institute and pay the you know, the annual fees that um, gets you access to all of our archives and all of our, uh, you know, proceedings articles back to 1874 and the uh, digital photos and archives and oral histories, all those things. Uh, we are offering from now until the end of June uh, something we are calling open access. And so if you go to our website, www.usni.org forward slash open dash access. And if you just go to the website, usni.org, you'll see at the very top, there's a banner, there's an offering uh, that from now until the end of June, for anybody who signs up, all you have to do is give us an email address. We don't collect credit card information, nothing like that. It's just a, a way for us to reach out to people who are, especially uh, young people who are doing a lot of distance learning. We know the Naval Academy is doing that right now, NROTC, NJROTC. Everybody's at home trying to do some of their professional learning remotely. And so we are opening the digital archives of the Naval Institute. So proceedings back to 1874, uh, Naval history back into the 1980s. Um, and we are offering member level discounts on Naval Institute press books, plus free shipping if you are in the United States. So this is a um, it's a great offer. It's a way to test the waters if you haven't decided to become a member of the Naval Institute you can you can uh, join us now uh, for a, a free trial period. Essentially, you can read things like what Stephen B. Luce wrote about uh, higher level education for naval officers in the 1870s. You can read what Lieutenant Chester Nimitz wrote about uh, how submarines were going to change the nature of naval warfare. You can read what Midshipman Stavridis and Midshipman Sandy Winnefeld wrote or Lieutenant Sandy Winnefeld wrote about uh, Top Gun and naval aviation topics. Um, so you, there's there's just an incredible depth of uh, material in both naval history and proceedings going back to the uh, uh, you know decades for naval history, almost a century and a half for proceedings magazine. Plus, the Naval Institute Press, the member only discounts, member level discounts are really significant, forty percent off plus free shipping on a lot of books. So uh, check that out if you haven't uh, if you haven't been to our website or if you haven't decided made the decision to become a member 
uh, please do so. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is coming up next Thursday, a week from today, 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, uh, we will be bringing the annual meeting of the Naval Institute to all our members and all our fans. Anybody who's interested in the Naval Institute can uh, sign up and essentially go to the Naval Institute's annual meeting, which is usually held at the Center for Strategic and International Security uh, downtown D.C. This year it was supposed to be at the International Spy Museum in person downtown D.C. Of course, we had to cancel that in-person event, but we're doing the annual meeting of the Naval Institute via webinar. The CNO is uh, invited to be the uh, the guest speaker. Our CEO, Pete Daly, will be providing a state of the update or state of the uh, institute update. He'll also be recognizing the proceedings author of the year, the Naval Institute press author of the year, the winners of the general prize essay contest, the winners of the midshipman and cadet essay contest. He'll be providing some updates on how things are going with the Jack C. Taylor Center construction, uh, how the coronavirus has impacted the operations of the Naval Institute and how we've flexed and moved through that. So a lot of good information There'll be a chance for people to uh, essentially just chat in questions if they have questions for the CNO or for Admiral Daly. Uh, in some ways, I think this is a great thing because, you know, our annual meeting usually draws in, you know, hundreds of people in person, which is a it's a wonderful event. Uh, but this year we have the opportunity for people to tune in and join us from across the globe. And so our international members our international readers and fans, people in San Diego and Northwest uh, Washington State and, you know, all these places where the fleets are concentrated will have a chance to join in and listen to the annual meeting uh, online. So you can go, you can find the link to that. You can register and sign up. Go to the website, usni.org, and click on events, and you'll get there. So those are my public service announcements for today. All right, fantastic. The other thing to talk about, Bill, before we get to our guest, some of the latest about what's happening around the Naval Academy. As we've said before, and as most of our listeners know, the Naval Institute's headquarters is located on the Naval Academy grounds, also known as the Yard in colloquial terms. Um, as Bill just mentioned, they are distance learning like every institution of higher learning across the land. People probably saw the Air Force graduation on April 18th, the Air Force Academy graduation on April 18th. It looked to me sort of Orwellian. They were in the stadium there separated, you know, by social distancing norms and wearing white masks. And the, the Vice President Pence addressed them. And then they were sent uh, to the Air Force, uh, the, the fleet, the force. So the fleet does need these folks. As our regular listeners know from our last show, we we're talking to one of the flight instructors down at uh, Helicopter Training Squadron. Flight school is going on. It's, it's creating winged aviators in earnest because the fleet has a demand, which it surprised me that they were, uh, they were pressing on completely unmitigated. So the Naval Academy is the primary accession source for the Navy and Marine Corps has to generate grads, regardless of what's happening with um, the social norms associated with coronavirus. The other dependencies in terms of what the Naval Institute does, as we mentioned, the first block of summer training was canceled, and we didn't know how that would affect our internship program, which we've done for two years, and we absolutely love having Naval Academy midshipmen as colleagues during the summer. Well, that program has been completely canceled for this summer in lieu of primary training and not elective training. So we're very saddened that we've been informed that we will not have a summer internship program this summer. And we'll look to continue that in the summer of 2021. And then the final element here that 
we are involved in is Plebe Summer. So we're lucky enough to have every one of the 30 platoons of the Plebe class during Plebe Summer come to Beach Hall, and we give them a, a quick lecture. We give them 45 minutes of air conditioning and a, a cliff bar and a Gatorade, which they love uh, in the hot summer. But we also talk to them about what the Naval Institute is. We introduce them to the idea that they will be eligible for the sponsored student gift during first semester. And then we give them a scene setter about the choice that they've already made with respect to about to embark on a life of great consequence. We very much enjoy this. But as I'm speaking, the Naval Academy doesn't know which form, what they call COAs, courses of action, they're going to take for the existence of Plebe Summer. One thing that's sort of interesting is there will be a two-week isolation period, regardless of which COA they choose. So the plebes will show up, they will be in isolation for two weeks, and then they will emerge from isolation well and then do either a five-weeker or a three-weeker training period into academic year. And even as we speak, the dean has mentioned he does he's not sure if they won't just continue distance learning into the fall. So a lot of craziness here. We are staying out of the current events business, as Bill and I have said many times uh, since we've embarked on this uh, the situation with the, everybody globally. Uh, but uh, we just wanted to, because uh, I know there's probably concerned parents and, and other people who do listen to the show. I've heard from some parents who are avid listeners. And so we're just relating what is known. We're not going to get into rumint. Um, and get ahead of, of the superintendent of the Naval Academy or any of the officials there. But we thought uh, maybe we could just relay some of the stuff that affects the Naval Institute uh, that is uh, decisions that are being made at the Naval Academy in response to coronavirus. So uh, another thing to segue to our guest bill that's been happening is, again, we're staying out of current events. And as we sit here, we're still waiting for the CNO or the vice CNO's investigation about the Teddy Roosevelt um, situation and, and Modley and, and Captain Crozier. And, and, you know, we haven't heard from him or about him for, for about a week now. You know, I imagine he's still in Guam uh, dealing with the coronavirus that he's afflicted with. Uh, but the article that our guest wrote uh, came into fashion because of its subject, um, which is shut up and row, right? So uh, let's, why don't we introduce our guest? Uh, timing is everything, sure. So our guest today is Major Brian Kirk. He wrote in the April issue of Proceedings a leadership essay titled Don't Just Shut Up and Row. He won third prize in the leadership essay contest that we ran last fall, sponsored by Dr. Philip London and Khaki International. Uh, Brian Kirk has also been on the podcast before. He's written for Proceedings before. Uh, so the article is called Don't Just Shut Up and Row. It shows up on page 72 and 73 mm-hmm. of the April issue of Proceedings. And uh, thanks for joining us from Norfolk, uh, Major Kirk. Gentlemen, thanks so much for having me back. It's an honor. So uh, timing is everything in life, as many people have said. And your uh, your essay, which was, you know, third prize winner in the leadership essay contest, which we judged last fall, and we're just waiting for a place to, to slot it in the print magazine, it just happened to come out with the April issue, which really went live on on the the web uh, on 30 Mar or 31 March, and it coincided exactly with the timing of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the Captain Crozier letter incident leaked to the San Francisco Chronicle, and the whole debate about the proper role of civil military relations, the chain of command, 
the role of military leaders in raising questions and raising problems up the chain of command. So your article has done incredibly well on the web. I think some people grabbed it. It wasn't even done by us. It was organic. People grabbed it and said, hey, this is pertinent. And then it just kind of spread uh, you know, organically very, very successfully. So I'm curious if you've heard any uh, feedback on your article. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, like you said, timing is everything. Uh, and we just blew up. We've gotten a lot of feedback on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, emails to my, uh, you know, personal professional accounts. And, uh, it's funny because I, I did have to dissuade a lot of people from the assumption that it was an op-ed on current events. I had to point to the timing of when the article was due. Hey, this was me going to APSEA West and being recognized for it months ago. Uh, and guess what? It needed to get to print, um, well before all the events occurred. Um, but the, the, it was, it was very topical by, by no design, uh, but it was very topical. And I was actually responding to other events that I'd observed. Um, and I can get into the genesis of the article as well, but to answer your question, yeah, lots of feedback I've gotten. Uh, I even had a couple of squadron commanders reach out and say, Hey, great stuff. This is PME for my, for my people now. Uh, I was very honored, uh, Damien O'Connell, uh, who, uh, leads the Warfighting Society. He utilized it for, uh, for one of his meetings for some PME, uh, for his members. Um, and then lots of, uh, junior officers, some out in the fleet, some I had never met that are, uh, facing similar challenges, uh, hit me up asking for, for guides about it. Uh, some of the midshipmen I used to teach when I was, uh, on naval ROTC duty, some Marines, some, uh, Navy, uh, out there in the fleet right now, uh, reaching out asking like, Hey, I'm, I'm dealing with this analogous situation. Um, you might have some insight. Uh, what should I do? Uh, so I, I've gotten the opportunity to, uh, to mentor, uh, via social distancing, uh, from afar. Uh, as a consequence of this article as well. So we're talking about Captain Crozier's circumstance and the the Teddy Roosevelt. You have a fantastic example in this article. So let's let's go back to Afghanistan and set the scene for us, which was the genesis of this article. Certainly. Um, so for the context of the deployment, uh, and just as a uh, primer here as well. There are the other things I, I can speak to them later as well that actually pushed me across the line to want to write a piece like this. But to set the stage for the context of the deployment, um, uh, and obviously in the article I was very limited for purposes of war account readability, but here it is. Uh, so it's about early 2011. So this is almost a decade ago. Uh, I'm still a very young, very new captain uh, at the time. Uh, I'm deployed to Afghanistan in support of an organization called NATO Training Mission Afghanistan, which have the, the training, the training to devise the mission. You know, in Afghanistan, you had, you know, the battle space owners, the owners, the people who were actually out there locating closeness and destroying the bad guys, uh, doing the, the harder side of, of coin, of counterinsurgency. And then those that were really just trying to build capacity with the Afghan national security forces. And that was part of the team I was playing for. I was assigned, uh, as the site commander for an Afghan border police or ABP training site, uh, at a place called Combat Outpost Lone Star which we just called Lone Star, uh, in Nangahar province, which is right along uh, the Afghan border, the Afghan-Pakistan border. Uh, with me, I had about 30 Marines, uh, 40 dying Corps security contractors, uh, and about 100 active duty Afghan border police officers. And our mission uh, was to train new Afghan recruits into ABP officers, uh, while also serving as the sole coalition presence in the area. Uh, near the COP, we had a couple villages, Londahel, Bamahel village, each had about 500 people, uh, the villagers, mostly subsistence farmers and goat herders. Uh, nearby, we also had an Afghan National Police Station, 
um, which had about 50 ANP officers. Uh, and if we pressured the police chief, he'd get his people out on the roads and do their job. But if we left them to his own devices, uh, they wouldn't be encouraged to get up, out there and keep things safe. Uh, the enemy situation was touch and go. Uh, we were regularly subjected to harassing fire, usually at night, uh, from areas in the vicinity of the villages. Um, but by the time we activated our base defense drill, got uh, meaningful situational awareness, uh, we had no positive identification of shooters. They'd have dispersed. And authorizing any type of engagement in those circumstances would probably have had no guarantee of uh, doing anything to the attackers, but would most certainly result in accidental killing of, uh, of local villagers. So what helped us was that the attacks were largely one-offs, you know, shoot and scoot, uh, often firing from outside the effective ranges of their weapons because that would prevent us from responding in kind. Um, however, that uh, just also kind of made it a matter of time before a roll of the dice would come up snake eyes and the bad guys would get lucky. And the bottom line was that we were largely limited to, to um, just being on target, um, which is very frustrating for the, for the Marines. The only real data we had based on our time there, which accords with what we had from previous occupants of the site, was this, that during periods of time when the Afghan border police classes had graduated and departed, leaving mostly just U.S. military members on the site, the attacks would increase. But also this, as coalition security patrols went down, attacks on the site went up and vice versa. So the more we patrol, the less our site got attacked. Uh, and so that kind of sets the stage for how things ended up playing out. So your, is it your battalion commander? Who, who was the colonel above you who directed that you not patrol? Yes. So um, we fell under uh, a regional support command. So in Afghanistan, imagine a country carved up um, like a pie. You had a regional command North, east, south, southwest, west, and capital right there in, uh, in the Kabul base cluster. And when I say regional command, I'm referring to, no kidding, the battle space owners. Overlapping this same terrain, the same slice of the pie, the country, were, were regional support commands. And those fell under NTMA uh, and were charged with the advising mission. So my commanding officer, again, it's a, it's a joint, joint combined environment, so it was an Army colonel who was the commanding officer of my regional support command. So me, uh, myself, as one of the downrange sites, as we refer to, uh, again, we just had this smattering of sites that fell directly under him um, that would report to him based off of our, our advising mission. So as discussed in the article, uh, the commanding officer during uh, his uh, first site visit to uh, us at, the, at Cop Lone Star, he told us that security of the district was not our mission, uh, that patrols were forbidden, and that we should focus on advising. Um, I pushed back. I pointed to the data we had in our own experiences that when we didn't conduct present patrolling, we created a void uh, that was filled by our adversaries. Uh, they had complete and free reign to step up attacks on our site and more than that to run wild in the district, which was a key hub through which weapons and supplies for the insurgency were flowing from, from Pakistan. But if we, as U.S. Marines, would pop up at unpredictable times, it would deter not just the attacks, but also the smuggling activities. So not patrolling created more risk to us, not just us locally, but also to others regionally. Um, but despite this, uh, the CEO, he overruled me. He pulled the plug. His, his insistence was that um, security, security patrolling was not a responsibility, uh, and we were just to do um, advising on the site. So it was kind of like we were rehearsing for quarantine because we were quarantined uh, to cop Lone Star, uh, in effect. There's a, there's a paragraph here in uh, on page 73. You say to him, sir, it's simple. When we expand, they contract. When we contract, they expand. If we sit on our hands behind our walls, it's actually more dangerous. And then he goes on. 
yes, it really is simple. If you keep patrolling, I'll fly you to Bagram and replace you with one of my staff officers. No more back talk. Stay on the cop. Train these Afghans. Shut up and row. So that's where the title comes from. So shut up and row. So what happened after that? Um, so uh, so I did. I listened. Um, so I, I pushed back initially because I knew we were assuming the risk. Uh, but he gave pretty clear guidance. So, okay, you know, salute smartly. I, I serve. Uh, and of course, just as we predicted, as time went by, uh, the bad guys noticed we weren't leaving. Um, so their movement wasn't unhindered. Um, so they filled the void we had created. Um, they smuggled more weapons into the site, uh, increased the harassing attacks, which in turn disrupted our training schedule. So our ability to do that primary mission uh, of training those Afghans uh, got increasingly disrupted because as a consequence, you know, you know, training would stop. We would do certain reactions depending on the type of attack. If they lobbed some RPGs, we would try to do battle damage assessments. Um, we uh, we were able in those circumstances to get permission to leave to patrol out there to take photographs of what we could uh, and get some of the, the RPG fragments back to the joint IED defeat organization so that they could do their own uh, forensics on trying to find out where these things came from. Um, but that effort, of course, deter or excuse me, uh, took away from our ability to focus on actually training Afghan border police officers. Uh, so that was the the immediate impact. And then, of course, uh, things unfolded later uh, when the the commanding general came out. Um, I can get into that uh, right now in case unless you had uh, another question on that point. No. So uh, I was just going to say at, at one point in this uh, period where you where you are following orders, you're shut up, shutting up and rowing. Uh, there's a nightly barrage of rocket rocket propelled grenades, and your gunnery sergeant says, "This is how we lose war, sir, by sitting on our ass." And uh, and you you reply to him, "This is what rowing looks like." So fast forward a little bit to your commanding general, uh, Army Lieutenant General Bolger, who comes to visit your cop. Yeah, so this is where things get a little more interesting. So uh, Lieutenant General Dan Bolger, Army type, he at the time he's the commanding general of NATO training mission Afghanistan. Um, and he was visiting our site uh, with uh, the CO in tow. Uh, and the, the general, he gave guidance to restart security patrol. Now, how this came about was a little awkward. So I'm giving the, the commanding general the, the tour of the site. Uh, we had a lot of VIPs come out, so this is kind of routine. Uh, given the brief on the security situation, how it's deteriorating, uh, the district, the smuggling situation, uh, the, the normal stuff that I imagine the commanding general would want to know if he's taking the time to, to visit us. And at one point, um, I'm, we're up on the Century Tower. I'm, I'm pointing out the, the local area. I point out the, the Afghan police station. And, and the general, he asked, Hey, what did the, uh, what is, what's the Afghan national police chief? What are his thoughts on the situation? And since we were effectively quarantined to the cop, uh, we hadn't been able to talk to him for quite some time. And the CEO's body language made it pretty clear he, he didn't want to be in the crossfire here. And I certainly, didn't want to throw the colonel under the bus right in front of the commanding general. So I, I kind of vaguely mentioned that I was told the guidance was advising was our priority and that security patrolling was not permitted for NTMA units. And, and the CG, the general, uh, he was pretty straightforward in saying, hey, that my Marines and I, we were the coalition out here. And if we didn't get skin in the game, that the Afghans would not follow suit. Uh, so I said, aye, aye, sir. Hey, we'll start restart security patrols first thing tomorrow. Um, so I was, I was pretty excited at that point. Like, okay, great. You got, got the intent right from the top. This is fantastic. Uh, we're going to be able to, uh, deter the bad guys and, and take control of the situation a little more firmly. And, and then after the commanding general's bird picked him up, 
the commanding officer who was still there waiting on his uh, helicopter to come get him, he immediately told me that the security patrols were still a no-go. Uh, so I pushed back and like, hey, the commanding general literally just said the opposite. The, the CEO, he, uh, he said that he was not looking to incur, incur unnecessary casualties, that patrols would only increase the risk of that, and that if I didn't shut up and roll, uh, he reminded me just how easily replaceable I was. He pulled me back to Bagram, worked on his staff, while he sent one of those staff officers down to Lone Star to replace me, which uh, was was a bit of a dilemma because, you know, selfishly, I'm thinking, oh, man, hey, I am in command of a downrange site. I don't want to lose this opportunity. And then less selfishly, I hope, uh, my Marines, you know, I trained with them for some of them the better part of a, of a year and a half, almost two years, some as short as six months, but still six months. We knew each other very well. And then there was the, the potential that I was going to be replaced by somebody who didn't have the rapport of the Marines and who was just going to, to be a guest man anyway. Uh, so assessing all that, I just figured um, the, the best course of action at that point in time was just to, to shut up in a row. So I myself was complicit in, you know, not following hires guidance and instead following the order from my immediate, my immediate superior in command. So you, you point out that a couple of years later, 2014, General Bolger, that same commanding general, after he retired, he goes on to write a book called Why We Lost, a general's inside account of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And he insisted the buck stopped with him. He writes, I'm a United States Army general, and I lost the global war on terrorism. And you say, looking back, you think he's being excessively hard on himself. But then you also ask some questions here. How many other teams or units were given guidance that contradicted their commanding general? Could stability have been achieved and strategic momentum built district by district if other leaders had nested their own guidance in that of the commanding generals? How much did personal agendas and contradictory orders get in the way of a unifying vision? So give us your your thoughts on that. And I think you're being hard on yourself by saying that you were complicit in this, but uh, let's hear your thoughts on those things. So uh, obviously the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in this case Afghanistan, hugely complex issues. Uh, but I think um, we can point to a certain certain bits of things that we in the Department of Defense, you know, on the DOD side, did have a little bit more control of. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of people talking about, uh, you know, the, uh, the policy from uh, administrations and all that stuff, uh, because there's there's certainly a, a part of that. But that's uh, again outside the scope of here. So I'm thinking, what can we control? What could military leaders uh, in this situation control? And, and we can certainly. Uh, control our own ability to nest our actions in the commander's intent. The commander's intent is everything. Uh, it is the heart of our maneuver warfare philo- uh, philosophy in the, in the Marine Corps. And in fact, uh, mission command uh, across the forces, across the services, uh, mission command, you know, it's part and parcel of the, um, you know, fleet design uh, for the Navy. And uh, so this isn't something unique to the Marine Corps. This isn't some niche subject. This is something that we all should be able to embrace. And the heart of that is, the boss gives his intent, and uh, you find a way to make it happen. Um, he might not necessarily tell you exactly how to do it, but he trusts you. Uh, you're given special trust and confidence to carry out that uh, carry out a mission to achieve that intent, which is what allows us to operate at the speed of trust, which is what allows a senior commander to say, hey, my intent is X, my desired end state is Y, and then he can turn to another problem knowing that that subordinate is going to do everything they can to meet that intent so that other things can be coordinated and allow for this this coalescing, this this cascading effect to lead to success in whatever form. And in situations like this, um, when people up and down the chain are not doing what they're supposed to do to support that intent, 
then naturally a strategic vision can never come to fruition. Um, again, if at, at his headquarters in Kabul, he's saying, hey, I want us to do this. My, my vision is NTMA. You are the coalition presence. We need to get skin in the game so that the Afghan national security forces we have been ch- charged with training so that they will, you know, they will follow suit and then we can eventually hand the fight off to them. If we are not doing that at the tactical level, uh, where I was or even where the, uh, the commanding officer was from his, uh, his seat in Bagram for all of his downrange sites, then there was no chance in hell that the commanding general's strategic vision was ever going to come to fruition. I, I was, Lucky enough to be able to teach ethics and leadership, those two courses at the Naval Academy at the end of my career. And I used to often, as we're reading a case study, we're talking about an abstract concept, just add that when you get to the fleet, nothing's going to be this clean. And so we've seen this with the the TR incident, you know, to sort of simplistically lay out the two sides. Captain Crozier did what he had to do to save to protect the health and welfare of his troops, and that included leaking a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle. He didn't directly do that, but in you know, two two degrees removed from the San Francisco Chronicle, in order to affect quicker action to respond to the unfolding crisis. Acting Secretary Modley and the Navy chain of command basically said, "Nice bilge, Captain." We had moved Earth and Sky within the process, within the chain of command, which, oh, by the way, is necessary because you happen to be in charge of a capital asset that is involved in protecting the sea lanes and the national interest. So let's take your scenario and pressurize it a little bit, because what I want to do is pull up to 30,000 feet and ask, at what point would you have stopped shutting up and rowing? Okay, so let's just pressurize. You, you had some rocket attacks. You, you say in the article they weren't, they were sort of cursory um, and, and just for effect. But at, at what point with that kinetic activity would you have actually either started patrolling just, just on your own to, to push the, the bad guys back away? Or would you have resigned your commission or let one of those other staffers that he claimed he had come relieve you? What, what would it have taken? What's that matrix look like? Clearly, I mean, if I could make a chart of it, um, this is, that risk increases to a certain point where I assess that there's something that I have to do. Um, now, what action that could be, uh, there, there are many. Uh, and you mentioned, hey, you're, you know, resigning or saying, hey, I, okay, fine, I, I'm not going to do this. Um, I quit or you can, you're going to fire me, but I'm not going to be complicit in this. Um, and I, I question to a degree um, the utility of that in a scenario like the one I faced. Um, and again, going, like you said, the 30,000 foot view, uh, we've seen, uh, in the, in the fairly recent, uh, past certain high profile resignations. Uh, and in those circumstances, um, you know, they're, they're replaced by somebody who's going to be a little more likely to, to, to toe the line to a degree. Um, so a message is sent and that's very, that can be helpful. But my, my scenario was a little, little different. But so I will say this again, there were, uh, points in the article. Um, that I had to come out just due to word count readability. And, and I did reach that point. Um, I got to a point where I ended up patrolling again anyway. So, so again, addressing my own strategic calculus here, I knew outright disobedience wouldn't achieve much. Uh, from a selfish perspective, I'd lose my command and lose out on career opportunity. From a less selfish perspective, I was obviously concerned for my Marines. And with me out of the way, there'd be an unknown entity in charge, another officer sent from Bagram, definitely not a Marine. Because uh, they only had Army and Air Force officers there, uh, and that was their poor my Marines, like I mentioned before, and they certainly would have towed the line that I wouldn't have towed. 
But here's what happened. The attack stepped up. All right, the attack stepped up, and I'm in my in my head. I'm running the math. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, they they might be just lobbing RPGs from a place where they feel safe, so it's very ineffective. But I mean, it's like it's like the lottery, and they're buying a ticket every night, and it may just be a matter of time before they win. Uh, and I didn't want to keep on taking that risk. So as the end of the deployment approached, um, you know, there were these two other pressures. The physical risk was only increasing due to the step of attacks. Uh, while the personal selfish risk was, was diminishing. Uh, and I figured, you know, how bad could it be to, to get fired from the last couple of months, right? You know, that's not as bad as just getting ripped ripped away, like right at the outset of the deployment. Oh, would the juice be worth the squeeze for the CO to replace me for just a heartbeat? Uh, if I was going to have to redeploy anyway in a relatively short period of time. Uh, so we got to a point where we did restart those patrols. I just didn't put them on my daily sit reps that went up to Bagram before, you know, I'd report Quite everything, you know, as much as I could that I thought was relevant. Uh, so I just started patrolling again, and I just did not put that on the situational report. So now there was risk here. You know, were to get back, um, or God forbid, if a kinetic action would have resulted uh, and something uh, adverse happened to me or my Marines, uh, the word would certainly have gotten out. But at that point, I assessed, you know, I could certainly get the attention of the commanding general. And when the dust settled, I'd be able to land on my, my feet because I was carrying out the direct order of the guy with stars on his collar who was in charge of all of this. So we kicked patrols back up a bit uh, and had a fairly more peaceful wrap-up to the deployment. So to answer your question, I guess I did reach that point when the risk seemed uh, too excessive. But that's an incredibly hard position to be in as a, as a young captain, right? You're out there really between a rock and a hard place. You've got a, a commander saying, don't do this. But the longer that you refrain from patrolling, the, the higher the risks are that you're one of your Marines – uh, you know, could get injured or killed in one of these attacks. Uh, but if you go out there and a Marine gets, you know, killed or injured during a patrol and your immediate commander doesn't know that you've been patrolling, um, yeah, you might be in concert with the commander, the commanding general's intent. But wow, what a, I mean, what a conundrum. What a terrible place for, for a young officer to be, right? Uh, so the final part of your article is called Speak Up and Hold. So we start off with Shut Up and Row. And then your final advice is speak up and hold. Uh, so tell our listeners what you mean by that. Uh, so what I mean by that is, uh, again, it's a, the contrary piece to, you know, shutting up and rowing. You know, there, there's, a, there's a point where absolutely, I mean, we, we're expected to do that. Um, and in the more tactical scenario when it's, it's life and death right now, um, you don't really have much time to, to negotiate or, or make recommendations, seek coordination. Uh, in other instances, you do. Um, but when you get to a point when you're giving uh, some sort of order that you know is contradictory to the hire's intent, when you get to something that you know is going to be increasingly unethical and immoral, and, and to your point, nothing's clean or easy. Everything's messy, right? Uh, it's easy for me to, to talk about our core values and, and define them, uh, and I, I, I absolutely do value them and have used them in my own uh, almost every safety brief, I touched on a core value and how it could be, be used in an appropriate way. But that's easy. You know, these situations are hard. That's when things get messy. And one of the hardest things that leaders have to do is understand that line. Like, where is that line? Where is it when you you fall in line? The boss has made the call. He might you might disagree with him, but he's in charge and he might know it's something you don't, you know, and, and oftentimes they do. But you'll get to this point wherein Again, that, that gut feeling is telling you more increasingly that this is not right uh, and that the risk is outside the bounds of what you're supposed to be doing here. And you need to dig in. You need to, you need to speak up and hold 
and ensure that the right leaders are aware of what's going on. Uh, and so as examples, you know, some of the things that compelled me to, to write the piece in the first place was in the context of the surface incidents out in Seventh Fleet uh, in 2017 and uh, many aviation attacks. So I was I spent some time uh, in person and aircraft wing. So I was you know, very aware of aviation mishaps that were happening across various squadrons, which were suffering from systemic issues of lack of availability for uh, aviation maintenance and aviation supply, which then led to this vicious cycle of pilots having less time to train, um, but of course still having, commanders still having to, uh, or feeling pressure to accept those missions. So um, we need to get to a point where just as the, the report on those surface incidents in 2017 uh, say, one of the conclusions is, hey, we want our commanders to speak up. When they're at a point where they can't actually carry out the mission, we want them to say, hey, sir, hey, ma'am, uh, hey, Admiral, we can't do this. We need more. Uh, the risk is un- is undue, uh, and, and we can't make it happen without this other awful thing probably happening, which will even be more strategically damaging than just taking a pause now and getting back into battery. Um the report says that that should happen. You know, I, I recall, I can't recall the exact uh, officer who said it, but I recall somebody speaking and being asked the same question, like, hey, if a, if a ship CO said we can't deploy because of these reasons, uh, what, what are you going to do? And I think the answer was something like, I'll meet him at the pier and give him a medal. We say that, but then we see instances like what's been going on with the, the Teddy Roosevelt. And so the force gets the mixed message. We, 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 the perception among many of my peers is that the organization is speaking out of both sides of its mouth, that on the one hand it's saying publicly, yes, we want you to speak up. We want you to speak up and hold. But when somebody does, they're punished for it. So that can then undermine an ethical leader's willingness to you know, stay in the, the, the organization for the long term. That can make a young midshipman at the academy question, hey, my professors, my, my instructors are telling me all day honor, courage, commitment. But when I look out in the fleet, this is what happens to those who are enacting these these ethics that we're being taught, and that can have a, an absolutely poisonous effect. And even go into recruiting, you know, you're a, a young, you know, 18 year old man or woman uh, considering what you're going to do with your life. You're considering uh, the sea services, and then you see this on the news, and then that might turn you off. Or if you're a parent who has a lot of influence on what that young man or woman might choose to do with their life, you're thinking this could be my kid on that ship, and when their boss tries to these actions to look out for them, they get punished and my child is going to be at a greater risk. And so then you might end up dissuading your son or daughter from enlisting in the first place. So there are cascading effects of this messaging. And it's incumbent on the Navy to get, as much as it can at this point, get this messaging piece right. So that way we do take the right message away from what has happened. Regardless of right or wrong, however the investigation comes out, we have to get the messaging right. Yeah, I think you've tied very nicely, in, both in your article and in your comments just then, the Navy's uh, collisions out in Seventh Fleet, the McCain and the Fitzgerald, and some of the lessons that came out of that. You point out in one of your final paragraphs here, leaders must be encouraged and incentivized to be candid about reporting shortfalls. If one leader is reporting more challenges than his or her peer, this does not mean the second leader is producing better results. It may mean that the second leader is worse at inspecting his section or is hiding poor performance. So, and I think that gets to the point of, you know, ships feeling, ships, CEOs feeling the heat of uh, needing to do the mission at whatever cost and get underway no matter what, how many CAS reps they had 
or how many training shortfalls they had and or how many personnel shortfalls that they had. Uh, and then we knew what the results are from that. So for our listeners, our guest has been Major Brian Kerg, U.S. Marine Corps. His article is called Don't Just Shut Up and Row. It starts on page 72 and 73 of the April issue of Proceedings. It's also, you can find it at usni.org. Go to Proceedings and look for it in the April issue. So, uh, Major Kirk, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Gentlemen, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, that'll do it for this edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you next time. This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by GE Additive. Additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a transformative approach to industrial metal production that could help address material shortages due to diminishing manufacturing supply. GE Additive provides machines, metal powders, engineering, and print services that can support the Navy with spare part printing capability and a more flexible spare parts supply base. 